Hello, friends, and welcome to the first ever Coffee and Deer podcast, coming to you from the National Deer Association. I'm your host, Nick Penizzato. I am the president and CEO of NDA, and I am joined by my good friend, longtime hunting partner, the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. Get to know the doctor. That's what we'll refer to him as, and you'll hear why in just a few seconds. Uh, Mike and I recently were the hosts of the Red Dog Road podcast, which was more of a personal endeavor, and then we've retired that in order to do the uh, second podcast of the National Deer Association. Uh, we'll get into that a second uh, in a second, but Mike and I, we go, the doctor and I, uh, the doctor and I go way back, way, way back. We, we have no hair now, neither of us do. You can't see that, obviously. Mike's chuckling in the background, but we used to have hair. We go back to when we used to have hair and uh, hunting, fishing, outdoors, goofing off and all of that type of thing. And uh, now we're podcasting. And so um, you'll get a chance to get to know us a little bit sort of uh, behind the scenes here, um, get to know us personally, which I think it'll make it make it a little bit of uh, fun for everybody. But before I dig too deep into that, uh, and, and, and then I'll get into the format of the show and whatnot. Let's talk a second about who the heck we are in, in case anybody cares. I mean, I don't know if anyone cares. I mentioned uh, I'm, I am the CEO of the National Deer Association, and that's really not a big deal. <laughs> it's not as big of a deal as it sounds. Uh, at the end of the day, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania and uh, grew up as a, as a hunter from the start. Even before I was old enough to hunt, I was way into hunting. And uh, a funny story I always like to tell is I just thought that everybody hunted in the world because everybody that lived around me hunted, uh, girls, boys, old, young, you name it, everybody hunted. And it wasn't until I got older and got out and saw some of the world that I realized that hunters are only about uh, four or five percent of the population, which is uh, probably hard to believe for some of you, but that's that's the truth of it. Uh, but at any rate, I uh, grew up and got hunting in my blood very honestly. It was a big thing in our family. My dad hunted. Uh, he taught my brother and I to hunt. All the neighbors hunted. Uh, and it was primarily deer. That's what we had uh, here in Pennsylvania. So um, I have been very blessed to have a, a long career at this point in conservation from the time I was leaving high school and decided I was going to go on to college. I knew that I wanted to work in some form of conservation and I have. I've done work actually more than a decade in fisheries management, freshwater fisheries. Uh, so that was cool. I've spent some time in the waterfowl world as the CEO of Delta Waterfowl Foundation for a while, and then fought the anti-hunters at the Sportsman's Alliance in Columbus, Ohio for a few years. And uh, then we started, some of you will recall, the National Deer Alliance which was an organization that existed for about five years. I was the first and only CEO of that organization before we merged with Quality Deer Management Association to create the National Deer Association. So don't mean to be long-winded, but the point here is, you know, I've been doing something in conservation for my entire life and mostly from a non-government perspective, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. It really is a labor of love. And I love, I'm a big time deer hunter, folks, at the end of the day. And that's probably what you should know more than anything. I love hunting stories. Uh, I love to write them. I love to read them. Uh, I love to hear them. So we're going to get into a lot of that here on the show. But before I talk format, let's go ahead and get to know the doctor a little bit. 
thanks for having me. Thank you for making me part of this venture. I appreciate it. But as uh, Nick said, I'm, I'm Mike Roman. I am a longtime hunting buddy and friend of, of Nick. I'm his, I think his Jiminy Cricket on his shoulder, I guess. I'm the person that <laughs> tends to level him out and he does the exact same for me because we tend to, we tend, some at times tend to be a little bit too cerebral and uh, try and think and put too much effort into our deer hunting. We just need to get out there and hunt and enjoy it. But uh, with that being said, I was born and raised in upstate New York, uh, very close to Lake Ontario. And I have for a long time been just completely eaten up with, with hunting and fishing in the outdoors to the point of where one of the first things that I read was an outdoor life article on the Jordan buck, even before I started reading those golden books in elementary school. So um, bow hunting has been my passion. I moved to Pennsylvania when I was a teenager and have continued to enjoy the outdoors. It shifted a little bit away from more of the fishing and um, small game and waterfowl hunting that we had more in upstate New York to deer hunting here and uh, have enjoyed it ever since. I, I like to think that I'm a bow hunter first and foremost, but I do enjoy turkey hunting and fly fishing and uh, secondary passion of training bird dogs. So um, for me, it's always something outdoors that pulls me outside the house and I will continue to enjoy that for as long as I physically can. But I'm a physical therapist by trade. I have no direct link to the outdoor industry, but I've always wanted to try and give back. So I started teaching in hunter trapper education and bow hunter ed. I'm a certified instructor for both for years. And that's how Nick and I kind of reconnected from uh, high school. There is an age difference. I am the elder of the two statesmen here. So, Way older. Um, Way, way older. <laughs> way old, much older. <laughs> to the point of where I was actually driving Nick and, a, and another friend of ours uh, to fishing and hunting locations because they didn't have their license yet. So we've been friends for a long time and I'm glad to be part of this venture. Um, as I said, physical therapist by trade, did that. I've done that all my life except for the past five years where I went ahead and um, got into education. I'm currently teaching physical therapy now at a university. So uh, as Nick said, they, you know, he calls me the doctor. I do have two doctorate degrees, one from Temple University uh, for physical therapy and the second one from, well, now we both share an alma mater for Indian University of Pennsylvania for curriculum and instruction in education. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell. And that's why he's the doctor. Um, I have two degrees. Neither, neither of those are doctorates. <laughs> and it's odd. It's a, it's a bachelor's in in environmental geography and a master's in psychology. So, uh, yeah, Mike can fix your body and I guess I can either mess up or fix your head. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, but at any rate, it's a fun combination. At the end of the day, we're redneck hunters and we're proud of it. And that's what we're going to focus on here on the show. And speaking of the coffee and deer show, uh, the format of this show is, well, first of all, we're going to, we're just going to have a lot of fun and that's, what we want to do more than anything. We want this to be, uh, whether you're listening to this on your way to work somewhere, or you're out cutting the grass or wherever you're listening to podcasts, we just want to put a smile on your face, maybe teach you something and introduce you to a whole lot of cool people that are out there that we have the chance to interact with uh, in the hunting world. But we're going to be focused on hunting heritage type things. So I'd mentioned deer hunting stories, uh, those types of things. We're going to, we're going to do a lot of that. 
Uh, we're also going to occasionally cover some conservation issues, things that we think you should know about, but really just sort of the fun stuff. And you'll get to know Mike and I will refer to ourselves as the B team often because uh, we are far from what we would call sort of like professional hunters, right? We make all of the mistakes that you all do and we maybe make more of them. And so you'll hear a lot of funny stories about that. We're going to have a guest on just about every show. Uh, today's guest actually is going to be uh, Lindsay Thomas Jr., who is the chief communications officer at the National Deer Association. And you're going to get to hear from him here in, in a few minutes about really just some of the, I guess I call it inside baseball of what goes on in communications uh, at the National Deer Association. And also we'll take a little trip down memory lane. Lindsay's been in this job for a long time. And so he's seen a lot. He's seen a lot of changes in communication. We'll get into pet peeves, that type of thing, but it's a going to be a good conversation that I think uh, that you're going to enjoy. I want to also mention that we have our Deer Season 365 podcast launching as well, and that's going to be hosted by NDA's Brian Grossman. His voice is way better than mine as far as hosting the show goes, so I'll just warm you up to that. He's got that big, deep Southern voice, which I think is perfect, uh, but Brian's a great host, and, and Deer Season 365 is going to be a different format and it's going to be more of what you expect on the management side of things what what you can do on the ground the more technical biological and so uh, we think that these two shows really complement each other and then I also want to mention briefly that we are we just launched the how to hunt deer podcast now that's not going to be a long-standing show that goes on forever it's a series that can take people from in a podcasting format kind of from a to z on simply how to hunt deer, because there are so many people out there among us who just want to know. They don't even know where to start, and that's what that podcast tackles. That's handled by NDA's uh, Hank Forster and Matt Ross, and uh, hosted by our friend Dan Johnson over at Sportsman's Nation. So uh, I'll explain more at the end of the show here about where to find all these things, but I wanted to make you aware of those. And uh, also, before we bring Lindsay in, I also want to make sure that you're aware of this promotion that we're doing. So uh, if you go to our website, now this is a membership promotion, but if you go to our website and you click the join button, I got a promo code here for you. Use the promo code podcast. It's not case sensitive, so it doesn't have to be all caps or all lowercase. You'll get $5 off our annual membership, uh, off an annual membership. I don't think it matters which level you choose, but let's say you take the $35 uh, general membership, you'll get that for 30 and we'll throw in a hat. So that's a pretty cool deal. Uh, and so hopefully you can take advantage of that and join the NDA. Uh, Mike, you know, you and I are going to recap a lot of the things that we personally do uh, throughout the year for hunting season, during hunting season, preparing. And so I want to recap. I know it's the end of June, beginning of July, but I want to recap real quick. I want to tell a turkey hunting story. <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners here probably also hunt turkeys too, but if not, I think they can appreciate this. And I, I think it'll give people a little flavor for uh, who we are as hunters. And we did not have what you would call a, a easy season by any stretch of the imagination. And in one particular case, I feel like the one hunt that we had together kind of summed up most of our season. And so I'm going to let you set the stage and tell the story. Well, uh, thank you for turning that over here to me to let me relive the pain, but here we go. <laughs> so we, we've share a hunt on this uh, farm that we have permission to hunt. It's open public access for permission. And 
I was out the day before to develop a plan. And so I listened and there was birds roosted on a very tight ridge that is very close to the road, but the bird doesn't give us a lot of room to move around. We can never get behind him. This bird has to either parallel this ridge or come down into this really short goldenrod field that's very young at this time. And so I made the phone call to you, said the bird's up on this ridge. We know that roosting location. You actually took a bird from that location last year. So you returned to that position because it is the widest spot of that ridge where we have access before it gets onto posted. I, on the other hand, decided to come below the bird if he attempted to try and scoot across the road or at least come down, gobble for a little bit and then move on to the posted. So we had our only two options covered and we get in there, we get settled in, we went in very early so that the bird doesn't see us because he has tactical advantage on this ridge looking downhill. And the only option was to, you were paralleling him and I was trying to cover his downhill side. Morning starts off, we both get settled in. I put my decoys out as a visual attractor and he starts to gobble and he's gobbling well. And as I told you at that time of the season, which was later on creeping up toward the end of the season that we needed to do a little bit more gobbler talk to him. So I was gonna Jake yelp to him and then come in with some light hen feeding calls to make him more jealous than anything else. And as soon as I start to talk to him, he started responding to me very well. His gobbling frequency increased. And at that point, I thought one of us was going to have a good morning. Just as it's cracking light and the bird hasn't touched down yet, I hear a vehicle slow rolling up the gravel road behind me. And I'm, I become nervous because the bird's really talkative. The vehicle, when I glanced over my shoulder, had its windows down, and I thought, this is not going to be a good situation. It rolls past me, but never I never hear it pick up pace again like the driver hits the gas. So that made me very concerned. And then I start to hear what I thought was someone calling. And the bird continues to talk. I have to start making decisions now about what I want to do. And so I change my calling and the bird hits the ground and the bird is just going nuts, double, triple gobbling. But I hear this squawking off to my left-hand side and I just can't figure out what it is, but then the bird hangs up. He doesn't, I know that he's in the field. I need him to come over this rise. I can't see him. And all of a sudden the gobbles start to get further away further away. Now they're on the posted ground. They're paralleling that ridge just on the side of that posted ground. You text me, you come down over the hill. And as I stand up and here's a, an individual in a pair of jeans t-shirt standing on his running board with his door open of his truck, calling to this turkey to make it gobble. Now, I don't know if he saw us. I don't know if he knew that we were there. I don't know what his overall purpose was. We did find out a little bit later. But needless to say, that bird was going to be taking a ride home with us until this happened. And that's kind of what we joke about as being the B team, where if something can go wrong for us, it does. And it usually leads to some frustrating moments, but we continue to do it because we enjoy it so much. Yeah, I mean, let's in, in quick summary, 
we had a perfect plan. We were set up in the perfect locations. Mike has the bird coming to him. And this guy decides to drive up into the field that Mike is in with his decoys out and call the bird from the window of his truck. Uh, and this is after uh, weeks of um, getting up every morning, being exhausted, and you feel like you're finally going to have victory. But somehow we were able to, to what do we say? We pulled defeat from the jaws of victory <laughs> as opposed to the, <laughs> to the opposite. And uh, it was just sort of one folly after another, another. And this, this fellow that drives around has become quite a character because he's done some other kind of funny things as well that we've observed. And so he struck that morning and we didn't take the bird home, but at any rate, it's, it's just one of those struggles that, that happens out there. And we're, we are certainly not immune to them. And I, I still feel bad for the doctor over there because that was his, his best chance, I think, to punch a tag. So uh, this is the coffee and beer show. And so I want to mention our November dawn dark roast coffee, which is a requirement for doing the show here. And you can get that at Big Game Brew, biggamebrew.com. And a portion of the proceeds, as a matter of fact, 50% uh, of the profits for the sale of November Dawn, which we named, it has our logo on it, comes back to the NDA. So please check out Big Game Brew and be sure to buy November Dawn Dark Roast. Don't buy any of that other stuff. It supports other groups and we don't want to share the money. No, I'm just kidding. But look up Big Game Brew, check it out and support the NDA at the same time. Let's go ahead and jump into our interview here. As I mentioned, we have Lindsey Thomas Jr., the Chief Communications Officer for the National Deer Association. And I have a chance to work with Lindsey uh, every day, which is cool. And so I can tell you from an inside perspective, Lindsey is just a real pro. He does a lot more than just communications. Uh, he's part of our executive leadership team, helps make uh, decisions for the organization. Uh, as well. And, but also, and what he would, I think, like people to know about him is that he is a big time habitat guy, big time hunter. Uh, he sells himself short on his knowledge in those areas uh, because he's very knowledgeable and he's written countless excellent articles that you've seen over the years, not just in Quality Whitetails magazine, but also on our social media channels, as well as on our website. And so, with that, let's go ahead and jump into the conversation. Lindsay, good to see you. Thank you for jumping in on the show here today. I just saw you in a board meeting. And so now uh, this will be a little bit more personal, but thank you for agreeing to be the first guest of the Coffee and Deer podcast. It's a huge honor, Nick. This is great. I'm excited to be a part of this uh, in a bigger way than just being a guest, you know, for us to be launching a podcast. Um, this is a big day for the National Deer Association. And man, what an honor for, for me to be uh, your first guest on Coffee and Deer. And yeah, this is a better venue than a board meeting. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you that. I like this a lot better. Yeah, this is better. Board meetings, we just, uh, you know, a little inside baseball on the National Deer Association is you just want to survive them and move on. So uh, we did that this morning, which was good. And no, I, I thought as, as we were planning this out and uh, full disclosure, Lindsay, uh, was fully part of all of the plans for the podcasts uh, that, that we're rolling out here at NDA. But um, I just thought you would be the ideal guest to start with here um, because I, I'm, we're gonna, we'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, podcasts weren't even a thing whenever you came 
uh, to the QDMA at the time. And so I want to I take a little walk down uh, through the history of your time here at the organization. But before we do that, uh, I should have mentioned that Lindsay is the chief communications officer at the National Deer Association. And he is uh, even more so known, I think, as the editor of Quality Whitetails magazine. And it was neat. We we're talking about the board meeting. It was neat earlier. Lindsay held up uh, a to one of our other board members was talking about his collection. And Lindsay had a copy of the original QW, as we call it internally, which I thought was cool. Um, and so and the other thing I would just say is that I've always been a fan of Lindsay, too, which is cool. That's the nice thing about working at NDA is I think a lot of times we're kind of fans of each other's work. Uh, and I've always been a fan of Lindsay's writing and, the, and what I've always felt like was the best deer magazine in the business. So uh, that makes it a little more fun, too. But, Lindsay, enough out of me. Just kind of in your own words, who, who is Lindsay Thomas Jr.? You're sitting on an airplane and someone looks at you and says, like, who are you, man? <laughs> who, who are you? <laughs> oh, it's um, well, you said it. I'm chief communications officer for the National Deer Association and proud to be that person. Um, been here for, um, and like you said, editor of Quality Whitetails Magazine. And what being uh, the chief communications officer involves is all of our uh, communications platforms from print to digital, digital, including the website, social media, uh, email communications, so uh, video. So all the communications come under me, PR, uh, you name it. And um, been here, when I say here, you know, I consider this the same organization it's been for, um, you know, a long time. It's, you know, QDMA folded into and joined the National Deer Alliance be to become the Deer Association. And, and really the strengths of QDMA and the Alliance are both still here. So it's the same organization. And I've been here uh, for almost 18 years now. Uh, joined QDMA staff in 2003. Before that, I was an editor at Georgia Outdoor News Magazine for nine years, which is just a general interest hunting and fishing mag here in Georgia, still the number one publication for hunting and fishing in the state. Um, and I was just very fortunate to get that job right out of college with a journalism degree. Um, so you know, always kind of had it in my heart and I wanted to be an outdoor writer, but, but in those days you, you didn't, it, that was a, a big leap to become an outdoor writer. Magazine editors were these people in far off high towers and you didn't know how to find them or uh, how to contact them. And so becoming an outdoor writer was a difficult thing in those days. And, and I really fell backwards into the opportunity to become an editor at Georgia Outdoor News. Next thing you know, I'm, I'm in, you know, outdoor communications. So I've been um, been in that now since '94. Uh, I don't even want to total up the number of years that is, but um, so I grew up hunting and fishing. Grew up with a passion for writing and communicating. Got a journalism degree, and so this has just been a. The, my career has been something that's been a great fit for me, and uh, being here now, being a part of a group that is about deer, not just teaching about deer, not just hunting deer, but ensuring we always have deer, ensuring we always have hunting. It's, it's uh, something I'm very proud to do for a living. So let's get into your hunting roots a little bit then. Um, you had to have a bit of a hunting background growing up, right, to have an interest in this. So why don't you take us back to uh, what it was like growing up in the, in the Thomas household and how you got introduced to the sport and 
how you how do you kind of became the the uh, ultimate deer nerd and eventually the outdoor writer? Well, I was introduced introduced to hunting by my dad. Uh, I'm Lindsey Thomas Jr. He's Lindsey Senior, and um, he was introduced by his uncle Lindsey Grace, and that's where the name comes from. My dad was named after his uncle Lindsey Grace. Um, Lindsey Grace and his wife Mary Thomas, my great aunt, did not have children, and Lindsey Grace was the only hunter in the family, really. And he took my dad under his wing and, and took him hunting and fishing with him and introduced him to the outdoors. And so that's where my dad got his passion for the outdoors. Uh, Lindsey Grace was a forester. He worked in, in those days what was called the, tur the, uh, the naval stores industry, or rather turpentine industry, collecting pine rosin from pine trees. So he owned timberlands and you know managed timberlands and um, hunted fish shared that passion on dad. My dad was a farmer. I grew up on the farm. Um, so dad took me and my brother and my sister. Hunting and fishing was just part of, of growing up there on the farm. Um, and also uh, that passion for managing the environment, managing the habitat for the wildlife that we were passionate about. Uh, dad early on, you know, was interested in habitat management, forestry, which he had learned from Lindsey Grace. Um, planting trees. He's passionate about that. And I've, I've, he's in, I've inherited that from him. Um, so, and it's just gone on our, our entire family hunts. Uh, a lot of his, my dad's grandkids are coming on now and, and hunt as well. So yeah, it's just always been in the family. We, we talk a lot about today about recruiting new hunters and the barrier it represents when you don't have anyone in your family who hunts, there's no tradition there. There's no one to take you and, and what a barrier that is. I was very fortunate to not have any of those barriers. I grew up immersed in it and, um, you know, very, very lucky. And, and that, you know, still to this day, our family enjoys hunting together. So, Lindsay, I will say that you got your passion for the hunting and outdoors very, you know, pretty honestly from the word go. One question I'd like to ask you is what would you say would be your first most memorable recollection of hunting or the outdoors? And I'm not asking for a successful hunting story. If it is, then that's fine. But first most memorable recollection of hunting or the outdoors that, that really cemented it to you that this is something that I really want to pursue the rest of my life. There, there's so many, Mike, it's, it's, it's hard to narrow them down. You know, you can go through the first deer stories and the first time in the woods with your dad and, and that kind of thing. But I think one of the first times um, that, that stands out to me, you know, when you describe what you're asking me here was the first time my dad left me in a deer stand by myself. I'd hunted with him a good bit. Um, and, and growing up in Southeast Georgia, I'll, I'll tell you this, we, had and still have in some areas dog hunting where you pursue deer with dogs and you get ahead of the chase and shoot the deer as it comes by. That's been a tradition in the Southeast for, you know, many, many years. It's fading now for obvious reasons. It's just not as easy as it used to be to, to hunt deer that way with smaller and smaller uh, track sizes in private lands. But my dad did both. He grew up hunting them with dogs, but also in the 60s, he took off with the the, the appearance of still hunting and climbing trees and having lock-ons and bow hunting and things like that. He really got into that. So I did both of those with my dad. I, I rode in the truck seat with him on dog hunts um, at the hunting club there near us. 
and also went with him still hunting, climbing up trees. You know, in those days, nobody knew what a safety harness was. There wasn't such a thing. And I just cringed to think what we did. You know, my dad even had homemade lock-ons and he'd climb up in them and I'd climb up with him and sit on the platform between his legs with my legs dangling and we'd deer hunt that way. Um, and, you know, I'd never let my kids or take my kids that hunting that way today, but that's how we did it. And so I have a lot of memories like that. But then the first time came when dad left me in a lock on sand by myself, um, you know, with a deer rifle, I think I was 12. And he went off through the swamp and said, I'll come back and get you at dark. And, um, you know, I sat there and I don't think I saw anything that day. It got darker and darker and eventually got, you know, pretty dang dark and dad wasn't coming back yet. And a barred owl hooted real close by. And you know how spooky a barred owl can sound sometimes when they really get to making the, the noises that they make. And I'm sitting there in a tree by myself and I didn't know what that was. And to somebody who doesn't know what a barred owl is, you know, your imagination when you're sitting there in the dark and you're 12 years old can run pretty wild. And, and dad still remembers this to this day when, I, when he finally came back to the tree and the first thing I said was, Dad, what was that? So it, it was, you know, that excitement of being in the woods and realizing, you know, how alive the woods are and things, how much there is out there that we don't really may not know about and how much there is to learn. Um, that, that really, you know, was part of that, uh, starting that passion for me. But also, you know, participating with Dad, being around his friends and his hunting buddies and seeing the social aspects. But that feeling of, seeing the sun go down in the woods and realizing you're part of that, that you're witnessing nature and the cycle of life out there as an observer and nothing, the animals don't know you're there. That's a cool experience. And, and that really, uh, I still love that feeling to this day. And that, so yeah, that's what I'd have to say would be that first memory that really ties into my passion for still doing this. I like that. That's uh, that's definitely a rite of passage is basically what that was is, you know, you kind of following around and then getting your first chance to step out on the stage alone. So appreciate your story. Thanks for sharing that. So let's go back to just, we talked a little bit about your career path and I want to dig a little deeper there. So uh, did you ever see yourself in this role? I mean, go back to whenever you first heard that there was an opening, right? And you maybe interviewed for the job. What was what was that like? And looking at where you're at now, is that something you ever saw for yourself? I did not. Um, you know, in college, like I said, I studied journalism. And I had this vague notion in my mind that I wanted to be an outdoor writer. But again, didn't know how you did that. You know, the, nobody at the University of Georgia Journalism School would pull you aside and go, here's how you get in touch with outdoor life if you want to learn how to write magazine articles. Um, you know, here's how you go about doing that. And in, like I said, in those days, today, you want to be an outdoor writer, you can start a blog today. You can start a social media account today. You can launch a YouTube channel and film a video and put content out there today for free. And you can't, you couldn't do that then. It was, you know, very different world. And so I really did not have an idea how to go about becoming an outdoor writer. Uh, I just knew I wanted to. And really the prospect was looking like that I was gonna become a newspaper reporter. That's what I was trained in. And so the opportunity with Georgia Outdoor News was perfect because that magazine itself was, a you know, we saw ourselves as journalists. Uh, we covered the state legislature. Uh, I'd go down to the Capitol and cover meetings of the Game and Fish Committee. Um, we covered DNR board meetings. 
you know, we were true outdoor journalists more than just, you know, how do you hunt and how do you fish, but serving as a watchdog for Georgia hunters and fishermen um, over things that they needed to have interest in, like what the legislature was doing with deer policy and what DNR was doing with their license money. Um, so it was, no, I never had an idea that I would fall that easily into that kind of a role. But so I got, I got, I realized I got very lucky. I did. Um, but no, to see myself here now, um, you know, as part of a very important nonprofit conservation organization, uh, that's very important for deer and deer hunting. No, I never, I never imagined that. So you've been in this role for quite a while. Uh, I think you said 18 years. And so obviously you have to, you have to be doing something right to stay in a role that long, uh, which, which is, uh, that's obvious here in your case, but take us back to the state of communications at that time, QDMA, so sort of day one, which you were handed, here's the job. And uh, tell us a little bit about from then and then maybe when you sort of felt like, okay, I kind of have control of this thing now, I, I own it. And then all the way up to where we are right now. So just kind of take us on that journey. <laughs> so yeah, I started, um, I got the job in 2003 with QDMA as what was called then publications director, uh, which really tells you the status of things. And then it was all print material. It was the printed magazine. It was books, posters, brochures, anything printed. That's what I, I handled. Uh, digital was not a part of it. Um, there was a website. There was a QDMA website at the time, um, but it was really just a marketing billboard where somebody could come and find out basic information about the organization. What do you do? Um, and what phone number do I call to find out more and join? Um, you know, that's what the website was then. You got to realize, you know, okay, so this was 2003. Um, YouTube wasn't created till 2005. Then Facebook right after that in 2006. Um, the iPhone came out in what, 2007. So, you know, the digital world that we know today of social media and electronic communications was not in place in 2003. Of course, it was even more primitive in 94 when I first started, but in 2003, QDMA had a magazine, the Quality White Tales. We had a basic website just for some information and we produced printed material like some books, like the Quality Food Plus book, educational posters, um, some things like that. Um, it, it was a struggle at first. We were, you know, we were in a little small rented office at the time. Um, I shared a little room with three people, three other people in, in a little single, you know, what would have been a one person's office under normal conditions. There were four of us in there. Um, and so, yeah, it was, I, at first I sort of doubted. I was like, man, did I make the right decision here? You know, I'd left GON where I was one of four editors on the project, and now I was the editor and in charge of all publications, but I was going, mm, maybe the nonprofit world wasn't, wasn't the right move. But that didn't last long. I very quickly got, uh, you know, learned the ropes, uh, got caught up on the magazine and, and learned many of the people that support the organization and support the magazine with content and I got to know the other team members and realized I was a part of something very important, very special. And, and um, it's grown from there. Communications has changed, of course, radically in that time where before when I started, the magazine was most of what almost all of what I spent my time doing. 
um, aside from a few other print projects, now the magazine is really taking a back seat to the digital communications website, the weekly e-newsletter, social media, um, you know, all of that video production for YouTube. Um, we spend much more of our time on that. And you're seeing that, of course, across the industry, that print that used to be dominant is going by the wayside and everything is digital now. So it's been, yeah, it's been a lot of change in the 18 years that I've been here with this organization. It's good change. I'm, I, I'll be honest with you. I love digital communications. You know, when you um, think about producing a magazine, writing something for a magazine, you put it out there, what you've written, and you might get a phone call, maybe a, a letter or two from readers saying, you know, nice job. Or usually more often they contact you when they're mad at you. Um, but today you can write something, post it, and immediately see how many people read this. Get the analytics back. See on social media. Measure the reaction. Learn things from the, from the people who read your material immediately. And immediately learn from that. What strikes a chord? What do people want to know more about? I love that interaction and I love that ability to have the analytics and, you know, to rapidly respond to something, to learn today about some new development, some new science or new research out there that's important. And by tomorrow, have some information out there for your readers uh, or if, if not even this afternoon. So as a journalist, I love that speed of interaction and that ability to immediately gauge and measure um, the response you're getting and, and improve your craft using that information. So it seems like this, this process or this evolution is something that you were definitely in favor of because would you say it makes your life easier to some degree? Would you say it makes your life challenging in other situations? I mean, can you speak to how you've had to evolve as digital media, you know, print media became digital media for say. Yeah, it's, it's made it easier in some respects and it's made it more difficult in some respects. So a little bit of both, Mike, um, uh, you know, easier in, in ways like, again, you know, being able to find people by email and, and being able to, you know, it used to be, you know, you're working on an article about somebody and you say, hey, can you send me a photograph of that? They got to mail it to you. You know, well, today they can email it to you and you got it in seconds. Um, you know, so the speed of communication, the speed of doing your research, being able to get on the web and, and find scientific studies and do your homework to, to communicate, to help you communicate to others um, has, yeah, made life easier in a lot of ways. Um, being able to share this stuff instantly on social media, being able to promote the, the material you've written through social media, through an email newsletter uh, and get it out there, that, that's made life uh, easier. Um, right now, kind of the place we're in is we're in the industry is this is in this position too. not just the National Deer Association, but we're kind of straddling two different worlds right now. Everybody's kind of got one leg in the old world of print and still doing magazines and then the other leg in the digital world. And so there's conflicts there. Like this week, we have a magazine deadline for quality whitetails for the summer issue. And so we're struggling with getting that done while maintaining the responsibility of daily interaction through our digital channels. And so, yeah, there are complications like that. And, you know, and two, you, there's the, the inherent complications of digital communication where um, there are controversies, there are, uh, you know, the negative feedback, there are the trolls, there are 
you know, the, the, the fires that can break out uh, online when you're trying to communicate that you have to stop and sometimes deal with. And, and it, uh, so there are complications, uh, but over, you know, by and large, would I go back to a world where there was no digital communications and we we're just doing magazines? No way. I'm very much a fan of the digital world. One of the things I hope we can do with the, the Coffee and Deer show here is uh, give people maybe a little inside look of the National Deer Association, sort of the, the behind the scenes, if you will. I remember way back when I was just a member of QDMA, I used to always wonder like what it was really like, like what goes on there. Um, and so and one thing I'd like to ask you, Lindsay, is what's something that you think listeners or members might be surprised to know? about the NDA communications staff or the team or how you operate? What would surprise people, do you think? Um, I think one of the biggest surprises uh, that still I run into all the time is that to find out that we're not out there hunting great deer land all over the country all the time, <laughs> that we're not killing you know, giant bucks in every state and going on all these primo trips. Um, you know years ago and, and it's still true to, to, to some extent with certain uh, folks in communications now, but um, you know, in the old days of magazine production, that's what it was. You know, the editor of the magazine was always traveling around, going on great hunts, writing about adventures and you know, the equipment that they used to do that, the guns, uh, whatever it might be. And, and the readers in many ways were following along with their adventures and what they learned. And, and um, so people just, you know, knowing you're in the outdoor communications, the hunting communications world, knowing you work for a hunting magazine, that's the first assumption is, oh, you must get to go on some great deer hunts. And we don't really, and that's, it's by design. That's, you know, when you look at what we do for our members, we're not here to go on hunting adventures and tell them about it. We're here to help them have great deer hunting where they are. Um, even if that involves, you know, traveling out of state and going on some adventures, but especially if it just involves deer hunting in their backyard where they live in their, you know, hometown and in that area, their state, um, how to understand the deer better, how to manage the deer better, how to have better deer hunting right there. And that's what we do. So we as a staff are very much that way as hunters. We each have our own little places that are unremarkable in the bigger deer world that we hunt and love and manage and know, you know, like the back of our hands. And that really is, it doesn't make for great hunting stories often, but it's a lab where we learn what things our members are also struggling to learn or need to know. Um, so it, it works perfectly for our mission, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's a big surprise is I'm not, you know, hunting, uh, Iowa and Illinois and Saskatchewan all the time. So, and, and taking the NDA private jet up there. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think too, and that's a great answer because that is something you hear a lot and people make those assumptions. Um, and I've always felt that uh, your team, you, you guys, one thing I would answer if I was asked that question is that you guys put out so much stuff that it's hard to believe you do it with such a small team. So I'll say that for you. Uh, cause I know you're humble, but proud of that. 
the other thing is too, a lot of the short videos and whatnot that you see put out that Lindsay puts out and his team and others of us that those are shot on the properties that we love and we hunt and we manage, uh, like you said, Lindsay. And so it's not, uh, always in the, you know, these, uh, big buck, rich Midwestern States and that type of thing. We're shooting those on our own back forties, if you will. Right. That's right. Well, and I, you will know, say uh, that, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. Well, what, what I will say is that if listeners here are not following the National Deer Association on Instagram or any of its other social media platforms, that post that you uh, put up, Lindsay, a few months ago, back in the spring, showing when you should not be hacking and squirting a tree where you actually cut a tree off and there was so much sap running out of that tree. It almost looked like someone was running a spigot over top of this trunk of this tree. And you made the statement, your your herbicide will be totally ineffective. When I was actually because I'm my place is up in New York state when it actually hit where my sap was flowing in, in some of my sugar maples that I was trying to, you know, clear in this area. And I saw that running. I thought of that post. I'm like, I'm not going to waste the herbicide here. I'll go and use it someplace. So on these elite properties, it can be quality information can come from anyone from anywhere if it's vetted and based in research and facts. So um, just being able to have that accessible as you said, with a small team that really is putting their heart and soul into a product can be helpful to anybody. Yeah, that's, and I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that you remembered that video. I'm glad to know that that one was helpful. Yeah. Just like you said, it was just a moment in reality for me that I thought, you know, this is a good uh, moment to share. And, you know, to what you said too, about fact-based and science-based information, that's another part that uh, I do like to tell people about because very people know, and that is that we, as a science-based organization, in our communications, one of our uh, guidelines is we don't put any information out there that is not backed by the preponderance of the scientific research. We would never tell you an opinion or you know some other idea or wisdom of ours if it is contradicted by good science. So we check everything. We fact-check ourselves. We check everything we put out there through a filter of science. Uh, Kip Adams and the conservation team, people don't realize this, but they proofread every page of the magazine before we go to press and other people as well. We will often send out you know, articles and blogs and other content that is uh, technical in nature. We will send that out to other qualified experts and say, hey, give this a look for us. Just make sure we got this right. And what people don't realize is how few um, organizations, communicators, communi- you know, uh, media outlets out there do that in the hunting world um, who will, you know, reach out to outside experts, follow the science, follow the scientific research and make sure that what they're putting out there is, is valid by that test. There's so much out there that the that communicators assume is, is correct and much that hunters assume is correct that when it's uh, tested in science turns out to not be right. And so that is a standard we set for ourselves and it's something, again, few people may know about us. Um, and I wish more hunters were aware of so that they could ask that question of other communicators and say, hey, do you check what you tell me uh, through a filter of, of, of good quality science? I think that'd be a great uh, podcast episode would be the top 10 myths of deer hunting or top 10 myths of habitat improvement. Um, because there is a lot of hearsay out there. And so to... And when you, when you actually are either hunting or investing your time and money in hunting, or 
habitat improvement or habitat work, misinformation could lead to catastrophic or more long-term um, errors or deficiencies that are very hard to correct. So it is, it's good to be able to have an organization that you can rely on and know that the information has been vetted by multiple qualified individuals. And it's not just thrown out there just for, you know, the sake of producing a, you know, a quarterly magazine or producing a blog post or an Instagram post. Yeah. I mean, and it even comes down to personal safety too, Mike. I mean, right. Um, you know, you, you can see information out there on hinge cutting, for example, where people are saying, here's how you do a hinge cut. And they're hinge cutting, you know, a 20 inch diameter tree of a species that's very likely to split and kick and jump around when you do that, when you hinge cut. And, and I just cringe because I'm going, no, that, you know, that's dangerous to, to hinge cut a tree of that size of that of certain species. You know, same thing with wearing your safety gear when you're out there doing that kind of thing. I see a lot of communicators out there not setting the right example from a safety standpoint. So yeah, aside from, from mismanaging a deer population or mismanaging a forest, you can get yourself hurt too. And that speaks right up my alley. So yeah, I'm all about, I'm all about safety because I have seen, unfortunately, the, the downside of errors in judgment, errors in safety. That's what's kept uh, you in sure business, you Mike. I was going <laughs> to say, that's, that's what keeps the doctor in business, right? You know, idiots out there doing dumb things. <laughs> well, and it's, it might not be, you know, I, I mean, I, I kind of hesitate to use the term idiot. It could be someone that's just misinformed. I sent you that video a couple of weeks ago of a, a gentleman climbing up in a tree to do some pruning apparently is what it looked like, but he made the sign of the cross before he climbed up the tree in front of the camera, which was a, a signal that this individual does not know what they're doing and shouldn't, it shouldn't be doing this. And it wound up crushing his leg. And um, oh. it's just one of those things that misinformation or just not being correctly prepared and trained could, could be a lead to catastrophe at the end of the day. I, I mostly use that term idiot reference to myself because you'll recall the time I was trying to hang a tree stand and ended up hanging from my wedding ring. So uh, yeah, I might got to look at my finger pointing the wrong direction. That's a story <laughs> for another day. Oh yeah. <laughs> hey, I did pop it back into place and just kind of moved on. So at any rate, uh, that's like I said, that's another story. But uh, but this is a this is a perfect transition to what I was going to ask you next, Lindsay, and you've touched on it just a little bit. And that is how outdoor writing, we'll stick to the outdoors because we could talk about journalism in general, but let's say outdoor writing, how it's changed during your career. Uh, what do you like about the change and what are some of the things that they're sort of pet peeves or do you dislike about it? Yeah, it's um, a lot has changed. The, the whole digital uh, world has changed the way outdoor writing works. It's changed the attention span of the average reader. Uh, you know, you've got uh, readers who were raised on smartphones and have busy lives and are doing social media and all kind of stuff and, you know, don't have time for a 3000 word in-depth feature article. Um, you still have people that do want that type of content though. So it's sort of uh, changed up um, the mix and, um, I would say required communicators like us to sort of meet the different audiences in different ways to have some of the long form journalism and feature articles for those people that enjoy that and for topics that demand it, but also to have, you know, the 500 word blog posts and the two minute videos and the quick hit, you know, social media posts 
like the stump video that you mentioned, Mike. Um, so, you know, it, it's changed. The nature of the audience has changed, you know, uh, to when you go back in the days with magazines and, and, and editors and writers and, and the, the loops you had to go through to get published. I think there was more of a true uh, journalistic um, set up there in most outdoor publications where there were editors and, you know, uh, writers went through a lot of scrutiny and articles went through a lot of scrutiny and proofreading and, and verification and, and that kind of thing. And that's sort of gotten watered down today as folks are in a hurry to get the story out um, or just, you know, because it's easy, because it's free to have a, a blog site or a video, a, a YouTube channel, you can film yourself and hit post today and it's out there. And so because it's so easy to go quickly to press, press in quotes, um, I think the standards of communication have, have come down. And, and I don't mean that, you know, people are saying or doing things they, uh, that are inappropriate so much as just information that, that really needs more scrutiny um, and, and more vetting before it's put out there to the public. Uh, so where, you know, that's another way it's changed. There's less of that today, I, I believe. Uh, the, the old, you know, magazine editor role is fading away. And, you know, today it's the social media manager is often the person that's, you know, the front line, direct line of communication between uh, the audience and, you know, the, the media outlet. And so not to say that everybody that's, that's using that model is putting out incorrect information, but many times the, they're skipping the step of saying, hey, we need someone on the team who vets stuff, who proofreads stuff who, you know, checks off on, signs off on messaging before we put it out there just to make sure we got it right. Uh, some people do that, others don't. Yeah, I think uh, not to get off on a tangent here, but I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, just how the metrics have changed, right? Like now you see a lot of titles that are designed to get you to click on something because they know, the writers know that they're rewarded uh, by their advertisers, by the number of people that will click on or link to an article or whatnot. And so uh, it's about how quickly can I get something out and how sensationally, and that's led to a lot of problems in our world, frankly, uh, well, in our world in general, but in our outdoor space, we'll stick to that, uh, you know, dealing with things like chronic wasting disease, or even as simple as reviewing products. Maybe you guys have found the same frustration I have, but, you know, let's say, you pick the product. Like I'm, I'm, I was looking at ceiling fans the other day, which I know is a, th a thrilling, exciting topic. Right. Uh, but I wanted to, to get a review on some brands that I was looking at. And it's, there are websites that were built to just put out fake reviews. And all they're trying to do is just get clicks for advertisers. It's very frustrating. You can't get to a legitimate review of a product even. And I see that certainly creeping over into our space as well. That's the downside of having the analytics that I spoke about earlier is having those numbers and seeing the clicks, seeing, uh, you know, the, the, the number of people coming to your site. And particularly if it's in, if advertising is in the mix, if you've got ads on your site or you're making money by the click or like on YouTube or you're making money by the view from ad dollars. Um, yeah, that incentivizes uh, bad behavior Be like clickbait headlines. You know, let's throw together some uh, pointless blog that's empty of any any useful information, but put some, you know, 
sensational, sexy headline on it that sounds intriguing. And it's just a matter of getting you to click. Once you've clicked, they've gotten what they needed. Um, so yeah, that, that's disappointing to see. Um, and it's, it's made it tougher on those of us with uh, legitimate content to compete in that, in that world. Um, but yeah, that's, that's one of the downsides of the, having the analytics and knowing, being able to see how many clicks you got is it drives people to, even if it's not about dollars, it drives people to want more clicks, to have more followers, you know, to, to beat those numbers and do whatever that takes. Well, to pivot here a little bit, Lindsay, I want to talk about something that you did mention earlier, but we didn't spend too much time on. And that was Lindsay Thomas Jr. as an author. You've written several books. One of my favorites is uh, Quality Food Plots, Your Guide to Better Deer and Deer Hunting, um, which is available on NDA's website. And I'd strongly recommend people to buy it there because when I checked on it on Amazon today, they had it listed for $320. So <laughs> that must've been an autograph. Must've been an autographed edition. Jeez. I think they actually might've moved a, a decimal point there or something, but. Um, Wait, but you, I've, I've got one right here for you, Mike, for 319. Uh, that, what a deal. What a deal. <laughs> I will click money. on that right now. Give Send me the money. I'll ship it to you. On that, and there's your analytics. <laughs> but um, yeah, talk about uh, a little bit about what motivated you to want to sit down and write a book? Because as you said, that's a little bit more old school where you do have to do some research and actually organize a very significant multi-page tens of hundreds of thousands of word document. Yeah. And just to clarify, I didn't write quality food plots. I did write some of the chapters, but it was a team effort. We, we assembled a crew of several people over a half dozen folks in uh, deer hunting and food plot experts and soil experts and, and habitat experts to write that book. I was the editor or one of the editors, along with Carl Miller from the University of Georgia and Kent Kammermeyer from here uh, from Georgia DNR. We, we were the three editors of that and put it together. Um, great project. But, you know, I, that's I, why it was so expensive. Everyone has to get a cut. Right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. I got to pay for my vacation home, Mike. I mean, what, uh, my hunting land. <laughs> But, um, you know, it's, that's just a passion for me. And it, it comes out in me every time we put together an issue of the magazine. It comes out when we develop an educational poster. Whatever the topic is, um, I'm fascinated by putting together the best information to help people. You know, when it came to that book, for example, the phone, as I've often said, the phone was always ringing at our office with food plot questions. How do I do this? And what do I do about that? And um, we answered them all the time. And finally we said, you know, we can't just handle this one magazine issue at a time with a few articles. Let's put together a book. And when people call, we can just say, here's the book. Um, not to make money on it, but to literally provide people with the guide they needed that covered all of these questions. So that's what we did. And that, you know, I'm just passionate about that. We did another book called Deer Cameras mm -hmm. when trail cameras came along because you know, we realized, I realized that not only are trail cameras fun and useful for scouting, but as a deer management tool, it's one of the most powerful tools you can hold in your hands. You can literally, literally do science uh, on where you hunt through a trail camera survey with your trail cameras uh, and come up with valid information like deer density and sex ratios and everything else. So again, we thought, you know, a book is needed here. So we did that. Um, it's just a, you know, when I was a kid, um, and I wish I still had a copy, I'm hoping my mom has someone somewhere. I, 
I started putting together a newspaper for our farm. There were a couple of the families that lived on our farm and participated in, at the farm. And I started a newspaper on, you know, art paper. I just literally hand drew news articles and then hand copied, you know, three extra copies and distributed them around the farm. I had a passion early on for uh, journalism, I guess you'd say, and writing. So, and that's still with me. Um, so yeah, books are just another medium. They're, again, it's not going away. There, there are always been a lot of good hunting books over the decades and more to come. People will, you know, people are never going to want to go away from holding a book in their hand. You know, they may still read it on a smartphone or on a tablet, but uh, long form information like that is, is not going away. Just a couple more questions for you here, Lindsay. Um, and the first of those is, what's your proudest moment uh, in your career at QDMA slash NDA? Anything stand out to you in particular? Wow. I did warn you I was going to hit you with one of these, so there it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Nick. There's been a lot of them. Um, you know, being a part of a team and seeing this organization win uh, some of the accolades that uh, the organization has earned over the years, seeing some of the impacts that we've had uh, on hunting, uh, on you know, deer hunters' lives. There's been a lot. It's hard to narrow that down um, to one, to one proudest moment. It, they, they happen regularly. I'm just, you know, um, you know, coming through what we did last year with the pandemic and as a team pulling sort of victory out of the jaws of disaster there, what looked like could have been disaster for this organization and turning it into something that was far better than what we had before, you know, coming out of that with something that in the long run, the National Deer Association that's going to be um, better and do more for deer hunters than anything they've had before. Um, that's uh, inc an incredible moment and incredibly, you know, uh, I'm, I'm proud to have been a part of that, to be a part of the team that did that. So those, those moments for me happen um, all the time. Every time I get a new issue of the magazine in the mail and look at what my team and I put together you know, and then again, every, not just the communications team, everyone on, in the organizations on the staff contributes to that magazine. So to, again, to be proud of what we produce there, to be proud every time the email newsletter comes out. Um, it's all of the accomplishments and the things that we achieve. It's, it's just, it's hard to pick out of all those and say, uh, this was the best, but um the creation of the National Deer Association is definitely up there um, at the top, having been a part of the team that did that. Spoken like a true team player. Uh, I think that's a great answer. And I'll, I'll close on the, an easier one, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> what, what can we expect from the communications team at NDA? You know, we're merger behind us. We're off and running. Great stuff. Uh, what, what can our listeners look forward to? They're listening to it. This podcast is big news for us. You know, this we worked uh, hard on pulling this together. Uh, you've got they will have the ability to listen to uh, the two of y'all on the Coffee and Deer podcast biweekly, and then the other side of that, which will be the Deer Season three sixty five podcast. Um, so this this pair of podcasts that we're rolling out, I'm I'm excited about that. That's a brand new thing for us. 
um, you know, we'll continue to be there on all the channels. We're going to try to do more in video this year than we've ever done before. Really, we've already done that this year. We've already rolled out more video content uh, in the first half of 2021 than we have uh, last year or any year before, I think. So uh, that's a goal. You'll see more of that. Um, yeah, it's just uh, more of the same great content checked and verified by the staff, like we talked about, you know, so folks can rest assured that whatever they learn from us is valid and meets the test and, and does not contradict with uh, the best science that's out there. Um, so yeah, more of the, the same great stories. All right. Well, hey, Lindsay, we know that you're trying to put together the next issue of Quality Whitetails. Uh, actually, about the time this podcast hits the world, will be not too far, I think, around the same time the magazine will start going out to mailboxes. So uh, we'll let you get back to that. But I think our listeners will certainly appreciate hearing a little bit of the inside uh, news on what's going on in communications at NDA, but also to learn a little bit about who Lindsay Thomas Jr. is. And I know I've certainly enjoyed it. And uh, I know the doctor has, too. So thank you for being our first ever guest of the show. I'm, I'm proud of this moment. There's another one to be the first guest. Thank, thank you all so much. I enjoyed it. Some great questions and, and can't wait to hear more of the Coffee and Deer podcast that's coming. I hope everybody enjoyed getting a chance to hear from Lindsay today on the, on the show. I, I, as I said, I think he's the ideal first guest. You know, you see a lot of communications, a lot of information comes out from the NDA. And I think it's cool to hear kind of where it comes from and hear it really from the horse's mouth, the guy that's in charge of all of it. And then also to just hear some of the, the personal side. I think one of the things that we want to accomplish with the podcast, whether it be Deer Season 365 or this one, is a chance to get to know the folks at the NDA on a bit of a personal level. And I think we've certainly done that here on today's show. Um, Mike, did you learn some things that you didn't previously know? I did learn some things that I did not previously know. Um, just doing some research before we talked to Lindsay, and Lindsay, as I mentioned before, that um, the book that he helped to author and slash edit um, was much more expensive everywhere else but at NDA's website. So go and buy it there. Uh, but like I said, I do follow Lindsay on social media and he is a wealth of knowledge and a lot of his posts have helped me with some decisions that I've made on my place with Habitat Work. So just enjoyed being able to have him on and talk to him in person. Well, we're heading here. We're getting into the first week of July. And so I know for me annually, this is about the time I start putting cameras out. I did what I always, I don't enjoy doing, but I had to do it last night, Mike. And that was, I finally put in my battery order for my trail cameras and so when you when you're running several cameras and you you want to run lithium batter uh, lithium batteries in those things because they're they last longer and they're uh, cold resistant to the cold you can get well over a hundred dollars really quickly just to keep those things going and that's something that a lot of people don't figure in when they actually are buying cameras that there's going to be that annual or biannual or however frequently you have to replace your batteries cost it that that comes into that so i know that a lot of us have to budget our money and pick our battles with our significant others so make sure you're you're planning accordingly is what i heard from you yeah it's like buying a house you, you buy the house you think well i bought a house that's great but that's just the beginning <laughs> 
Uh, so getting those out, uh, food plot prep, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people uh, starting to get prepared to do their late summer plannings and preparation for fall food plots. So that's going on. It's really starting to heat up. We're launching these at a time where people are really starting to think deer again. I know I'm going to uh, be doing a lot more shooting here, uh, preparation of gear. Mike, you're probably going to be dreaming and you probably actually haven't quit dreaming about that giant eight point that you got a video of last year at your place. Does that deer walk through your dreams on occasion? Uh, I would probably have to say almost weekly, almost weekly that, and it, it, it even more so when I'm out working and doing a lot of habitat work, because that's what that's what the goal is. It's the goal is to make better habitat and have more memories. It's not always about putting one up on the meat pole, even though that's enjoyable every now and then, but um, little victories is what keeps you moving forward. Mike and I both have smaller properties that we own and manage that you'll hear about. We don't own hundreds of acres. We wish that we owned hundreds of acres. We don't, <laughs> but you'll hear us talk about that on occasion. And uh, this eight point that, uh, that we're talking about here is tremendous. And, I should mention real quickly, if you want to find us on social media, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter, NDA Nick P. Simple as that. I'm not going to ask you to try to spell my last name. And Mike Groman, it's Mike Groman on Instagram. And that's also simple. G-R-O-M-A-N. You can find us there. Mike, any final words? What are you up to here as we head into, I guess, the final stretches of summer and getting prepared for the season? Uh, for me, it's still doing trail management on my place right now. We're, we've been hit very hard for two years in a row now with gypsy moth caterpillars. And the, uh, I've lost a couple chestnut trees because of that. Um, I've been trying to protect my apple trees the best I can. But even some of the red and white oaks that are on my place have been stripped bare as of last week. So I hope that with enough rain and the trees have enough energy to come back and generate some leaf uh, growth so that we can get some photosynthesis and keep those trees going. But it's been two very, very hard years back to back on my place. There, that's why we call him the doctor, folks. He, he'll use words like photosynthesis that I can barely say, but that's good. We need to have a smart person on the show and a, and a much less smart person. I think that balances it out well. So uh, yes, uh, lots going on for sure. And uh, I'm sure uh, folks listening as well are thinking about what, what they have planned, the places they hunt and whatnot. And it is becoming time to focus on deer, which is exciting. And so I think we'll leave it at that for the first episode. If you're not already, please consider subscribing to this show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Stitcher, just to name a few. Or just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast. And you can subscribe to this show, Deer Season 365, How to Hunt Deer. You can subscribe to all of those right there. Please also leave us a rating. That'll help the show climb the charts and be visible to more listeners. So we'd appreciate that. And for more information about the National Deer Association, if you're not already a member, uh, please visit our website at deerassociation.com. You can learn more about what we're all about. Uh, you can become a member. You can sign up for free. Uh, for our newsletter, which comes out every Thursday morning. And you can also enjoy our endless content on matters related to deer, wild deer conservation, hunting, habitat, and conservation policy. So again, all the good work of the National Deer Association. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for being a part of the National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.